What do you think is the most shocking thing Jesus ever did? No, I don't believe it's rising from the dead. That may be shocking. Now, he had explicitly told the disciples on several occasions that he would be raised on the third day. And referring to the temple of his body, he had publicly stated that if it were destroyed, he would rebuild it in three days. The authorities understood what he was saying and sealed the tomb because of it. You know, all who had ears to hear what he was saying should have known the resurrection was coming. It should have come as a shock to no one. But there's something else he did that many do find shocking. Something we find him doing in our text for today, and we read about it in Matthew chapter 21, verses 18 through 22. Now in the morning, when he returned to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, no longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. And seeing this, the disciples marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you shall not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, it shall happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you shall receive. Now, don't you find it shocking that Jesus would zap a fig tree because he was hungry and it didn't have any figs on it? Isn't that kind of like burning down the grocery store because it doesn't have your favorite brand of cereal? Some people would say yes. It seems It seems so out of character for Jesus to get mad at a tree and zap it. Especially when Mark notes that it wasn't even the season for figs. Now, Mark also does make it clear that Matthew has actually condensed this account. Jesus actually cursed the tree on Monday morning, and the disciples noticed it was completely withered from the roots up, The next morning, apparently it didn't actually wither up before their eyes. It simply began withering as soon as Jesus cursed it. But the next morning, the disciples were shocked to find it completely withered. And then Jesus further shocked them by saying if they had faith, they could do the same thing. They could even order the mountain to be picked up and cast into the sea. Now, either Jesus didn't mean this to be taken literally, or else no one has ever had the faith necessary to do it because there's no record of anyone else zapping trees or moving mountains. And I don't know of anyone who can do that today. So what was Jesus saying? 
And why did he do what he did? Well, the answer, I think, can be found by looking at the confrontation and the parables that follow. I think it will become clear that the fig tree was a picture of empty promises. And that Jesus was dramatically stating that the Jewish leaders and the nation they were leading had become characterized by hypocrisy and empty promises. His cursing the fig tree was therefore a picture of his cursing a fruitless nation. A nation where leaders wouldn't take a stand, where sons would lie to their father, where workers would break their contract, and where guests would scorn the king's invitation. Now, we've got to cover a lot of material to keep all this in context. And I hesitate to try to cover this much in one sermon. But I think it'll be better to lightly touch on it all and keep the point in focus than to expound at length on each part and miss the point. We begin with Jesus exposing leaders who won't take a stand. Continuing on, verses 23 through 27. And when he had come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered and said to them, I will ask you one thing too, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitudes, for they all hold John to be a prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. He also said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, the chief priests and elders had a right, even an obligation, to question Jesus. They were responsible for what went on in the temple And they hadn't given Jesus the authority to teach. So they approached him and asked, who gave you this authority? Jesus said he'd answer their question if they'd first answer his question. The baptism of John. Was it from heaven or from men? In other words, was John's ministry ordained of God or something John did on his own? Now, the question was a really good one to ask. Because the answer they would give would tell Jesus how they would accept his answer. If they didn't accept John's authority as being from heaven, they wouldn't accept him as being from God either, even if he said he was. But if they would admit John had been sent by God, they would have to accept that Jesus had also been sent by God because John bore witness 
to Jesus. Now, they quickly realized that Jesus had put them on the horns of a dilemma. And they said, if they said John was from heaven, not only would they be opening themselves up to accepting Jesus' ministry, but they would have to explain why they didn't respond to John's message and repent. If, on the other hand, they said John was merely a self-appointed prophet, while freeing them to say the same thing about Jesus, it would put them all at odds with the people who held John to be a prophet of God. Now, they really knew what they believed. And as religious leaders, they had an obligation to take a stand on such issues, even if their stand was unpopular. But they feigned ignorance out of cowardice and said, we don't know. We don't know. By refusing to take a stand, they revealed themselves to be just like the fruitless fig tree. They looked like they had something they didn't have. They looked like leaders, but they were afraid to lead. And not only that, they were sons who lie to their father. Straight on. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered and said, I will, sir. But he did not go. And he came to the second and said the same thing. But he answered and said, I will not. Yet he afterward regretted it and went. Which of the two did the will of the father? They said, the latter. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you that the tax gatherers and harlots will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax gatherers and harlots did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe him. The Jewish leaders were like the first son, well, at least in the New American Standard Version. In the NIV, it's the second son because it follows manuscripts that reverse the order. And the manuscripts are pretty well split on that. But the point is the same. One son said he would do the father's will and didn't. The other son said he wouldn't, but did. And the Jewish leaders were like the son who said he would, but didn't. They had openly committed themselves to obeying their Heavenly Father. They said, yes, we will be priests and elders and lead the people to do your will. But when God spoke to them through his prophet John, they refused to do what he said. Now, the crooked tax gatherers and harlots who had openly rebelled against God repented and believed John's message. Which son, Jesus asked, did the will of the Father? The one who respectfully said, I will, sir, but didn't? Or the one who said, I will not, but did? Well, in reality, neither responded properly to their father. The proper response, uh, kids, is, I'll be glad to do it. 
and then do it. Amen? Come on, parents, it's your chance. Amen, yeah, okay, all right, all right. All right, however, if we do have to choose between two responses, the responses pictured in the parable, the one who said no, but later did it, is better than the one who said yes, but didn't. The Jewish leaders actually did identify the better son, and in doing so, they refused themselves for refusing to obey. They had said they would, but they lied to their father. They were like the fig tree, holding out promise of doing something and then not doing it. In fact, they were like workers who break their contract. Jesus continues. Listen to another parable. There's a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. And when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. And the vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? They said to him, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper season. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the Scriptures, The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable, they understood that he was speaking about them. And when they sought to seize him, they feared the multitudes, because they held him to be a prophet. Jesus was getting under their skin. They could tell he was talking about them. The parable, in fact, was, was obvious. They were the vine growers who had been given the responsibility of caring for God's vineyard, but had proven themselves to be unfaithful. When God had sent his prophets to gather fruit from his vineyard, from the nation of Israel, they had rejected them. They had even killed them. Now, God was sending his son, and what were they doing? They were plotting to kill him. They had forgotten whose vineyard it was. They thought it was theirs. 
before it actually dawned on them that Jesus was talking about them, they had answered his query and condemned the workers in the parable who broke their contract, who broke their covenant. They saw what they had done in the parable was wrong. And they openly stated that the landowners should throw the wretches out and rent the vineyard to someone else. Jesus then quoted a scripture and identified himself as the stone the builders rejected, linking it with the air they were trying to throw out of the vineyard. He's mixing metaphors here, but the message is clear. They were tripping over him. And it was understandable. He wasn't what they expected. But if they would recognize him as the son, even though it would break them and their system to pieces, there was still hope for them. But if they refused to acknowledge God's son and cast him out of the vineyard, it would come back on their heads and they would be crushed. The kingdom of God would be taken away from them and given to a new people who would be faithful and fruitful. They would be like the fig tree he had withered. And he would replace them with a fig tree that actually bore fruit. It wasn't too late. Unless they became like guests who scorn the invitation. Into chapter 22. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatted livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way. One to his own farm, one to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged and sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. And those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests... He saw there a man not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called but few are chosen. Now, actually, there are two parables here. One about guests who, after accepting the invitation, refused to come 
to the wedding feast. And another about guests who take the invitation too lightly and show up without making adequate preparation. The first guests are obviously the Jews who said they would come, but then refused. Even when God made it clear that everything had been made ready and it was now time to celebrate the wedding of his son to his bride, the people of God, they refused to come. They were too busy doing their own thing to be bothered. In fact, they not only ignored the invitation, they tried to stop it from being sent at all. The king wasn't about to let that happen. He judged the people who refused to come. He sent his armies, destroying them, and set their city on fire. Something God would, in fact, do to the nation of Israel in 70 A.D. The king then sent the invitation out to others, all others, both good and bad, saying anyone was welcome at the marriage feast. They didn't have to meet certain criteria to receive the invitation. All were welcome to come. However, once they knew they were welcome, they were expected to dress for dinner. They were to clothe themselves with appropriate attire to dine with the king and his son. Now, this is obviously a picture of being clothed in Christ's righteousness so we can share in his wedding feast. The unbelieving Jews scorned the invitation by refusing to come. And some who were subsequently invited scorned the invitation by thinking there was no need to be washed and clothed in his righteousness before sitting down to dine with him. Through very pointed parables, Jesus confronted the chief priests and elders of the Jewish nation and pronounced on them the same judgment he had pronounced on the barren fig tree. Like the tree, they had held out promise they couldn't or wouldn't deliver on. They were leaders who wouldn't take a stand. Sons who lied to their father. Workers who broke their contract. And guests who scorned the king's invitation. Because of that, they were cursed and would soon wither and be replaced by a tree with more promise. And guess what? We have become that tree. We are sons who originally said no. We wanted to live our own life and do our own thing. We're too busy. But then we repented. We are the vine growers who have now been entrusted with the Lord's vineyard. We are the guests who were summoned from the highways and byways of life and invited to the wedding feast of the Son. 
It behooves us, therefore, to make certain that we have been washed and clothed in garments made whiter than snow. The invitation to the wedding feast has gone out to everyone. Let's not take that invitation lightly. Let's realize what a great privilege it is to come into the presence of a holy God, to fellowship with his people. But in order to do that, we have to first be cleansed by the Son. We can't just say, hey, yeah, sure, I'll come. We have to be overwhelmed by the greatness of the invitation. And then realize that in order to actually come into the presence of the God who created us, the God we sinned against, we need to be washed. We need to be cleansed. We need to be covered in the righteousness of His Son. And that when we do that, we have a seat. And we're welcomed. What a great, great message. In this whole setting of parables. And something that was rather shocking. May we never be shocked (laughs) by what Jesus says to us. Let's be washed. Let's be dressed. Let's enjoy the feast together. Stand.